Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. As you know, we're new and creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Usually we bring you a mix of national newsmakers and our own contributors. This week, we're bringing you a special episode that keeps things all in the Our Body Politic family. Our contributors help us cover everything from politics to business and entertainment, plus how we can vision our collective future. So today we bring you our sparkling roster of contributors, plus one guest who tells us how to prepare the children in our lives for big transitions as we head into the new year. But first, let's start with our very own Aaron Haynes. Every week, Aaron Haynes joins us for a segment we call Sipping the Political Tea. Aaron is editor-at-large at the 19th, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom reporting at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. I asked her to help us ring in the new year by taking stock of what we just went through last year and predict what might come next. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? You know, it's time keeps on slipping into the future. <laughs> and we are here to recap 2020 and talk about 2021. Oh, so, yes. Georgia is on my mind. Um, Any thoughts about the runoff coming up? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that uh, the closer we get to January 5th, the more attention uh, is going to be on Georgia, uh, both from a national perspective and then, you know, voters just really kind of locking in and and becoming more aware and and maybe even, uh, you know, turning out uh, based on their newfound swagger as, as you know, a, a blue state. Uh, wanting to kind of double down on November's results and, and um, you know, take control of the Senate. Who knows? So what lessons do you think we can take from 2020 into the future of American politics when it comes to Georgia? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's time to get serious about voting rights. Uh, 2020 was a year where we lost uh, probably the biggest champion of that issue, Congressman John Lewis. And, you know, his memory loomed pretty large over uh, the election, uh, not only in Georgia, but I think really uh, for for Black voters and for everybody who uh, cares about the um, integrity of our democracy. And so, uh, you know, this is not an issue that we should be waiting to deal with just um when, you know, every four years when it's time for an election, it, it's time to, to deal uh, with this now and, and, and you know, uh, to reject really the politics of voter suppression, regardless of what party we're in. So now that it is a brand new year, thank goodness, what are you looking forward to covering? Oh, wow. I mean, well, listen, we are just a few weeks away from uh, a historic vice presidency with Kamala Harris being the first woman, the first person of color uh, to be the second most powerful person in the country. Uh, and we're going to see what that looks like. And so that uh, obviously at the 19th is is just a tremendously interesting uh, prospect for us, uh, you know, from a political and policy perspective uh, and and what that has the potential to do for the country, the electorate's imagination around women and governing, right? 
you know, but I think also seeing um, the, uh, you know, an even more diverse Congress uh, that uh, is more diverse in terms of gender and race and how, um, you know, women and women of color bring their lived experience into shaping policy, particularly as this country struggles to reopen. And we know that women in marginalized uh, communities are, are struggling uh, mightily uh, to make sure that they can uh, return uh, to our society safely. Um, you know, how the um, vaccine is going to be rolled out, uh, child care and, and how that is going to be uh, addressed on the other side of this pandemic, all of the inequalities uh, that were laid bare uh, during this coronavirus crisis and what the new normal is going to be, uh, not only, uh, you know, post-pandemic, but really uh, around uh, systemic inequality in America. Now, 2020 definitely had its downsides, but one of the upsides was the launch of the 19th. So why don't you just, you know, yeah, tell us a little bit more about what your plans are for this publication as, as you know, some one of the key staffers who's carrying the torch. Oh, wow. I, listen, thank you, uh, Farai, for mentioning that. I, I cannot believe that we're coming up on almost a year since we launched. Uh, we launched uh, January 27th uh, of 2020, and it has been a wild ride. Uh, you know, I just think about uh, all of the journalism that we were able to do in 2020, even in the midst of a pandemic where we saw women really being directly impacted by and responding to coronavirus. And so even, you know, as the campaign trail kind of vanished under our feet, we were still able uh, to tell the stories that that were vital to our membership and that really helped us to grow and, and establish uh, the need for our existence. Uh, and, and, and I think that our members are certainly really excited about um, and I know I'm excited about the journalism that, that we're going to do as we continue to grow and we continue to focus on uh, the things that we know matter to them. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I cannot um, say enough about the need to continue to reshape the narrative around gender and politics in this country. Uh, but, but uh, you know, we will have not only even more of a case to make uh, in 2021, but we will have uh, even more opportunities to show how women are governing, uh, but also uh, women continuing to run and and maybe even win uh, elections. There there are you know black black women running for governor in Virginia, for example. Uh, that could be you know a historic first. Again, there's never been a black woman governor uh, in the history of this country. That could happen. The Atlanta mayor's race, uh, you know, is is going to be another one that I'm paying attention to. So a lot to. Uh, a lot to unpack uh, in, in 2021, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, Erin, I want to take it a little more personal. You know, Uh-oh. you spent the... I, exactly, you should be afraid. <laughs> but you you spent uh, this election season in Philadelphia and yeah. spoke to us about how long you waited in line. And your life intersects with, you know, as mine does, with just the everyday lived experience of being a Black woman in this country. Yeah. Where do you think we are in terms of having the power and respect that we deserve as citizens um, in a country that is very fraught right now? What are you looking forward to? What are you concerned about? Well, listen, Farai, I mean, I think as as a crucial part of the electorate, uh, you definitely saw Black women flexing their power uh, in 2020 in a huge way. And I think that that is something that is being reflected 
in the emerging Biden administration uh, and that and and that you know could be reflected in um, how the lived experiences of black women could translate into policy uh, at a federal uh, state and local level across this country. So you know I think that that black women are are really just getting started. Uh, I think that the election was uh, the first step uh, for a lot of them in terms of continuing to hold uh, this country, uh, this government accountable. Uh, in terms of their priorities and, and how they want to see um, the people that they have elected um, really, really showing up uh, and governing with them in mind. Uh, this pandemic, we know, uh, was uneven. It was unequal, uh, you know, in the year that, pretty much year that, that we uh, have mostly been locked down. And uh, the reopening uh, also has the potential to be unequal when we know uh, that that uh, you know, women of color are the essential workers. Um, you know, the home health care workers. Uh, you know, folks. A lot of fo- a lot of the folks who have had to make the very difficult choice between uh, their health and their economic health. Too many black women in this country are still being marginalized. Are still, um, you know, in need of. Uh, policies that address, um, you know, systemic racism, the wealth gap, you name it. Uh, and so while uh, I think that that uh, from a political power perspective, uh, we have certainly made some progress. Uh, we still have a long way to go to uh, bring so many of the folks that have been unseen and unheard into our democracy. So Aaron, one of the reasons I started this show was because I had a question. And the question was, what do women of color have in common and how are we different when it comes to politics across racial lines, religious lines, geographic lines, women of color are extremely diverse. And so as a political reporter, how do you think about this whole question of what women of color are as a super demographic and what we need to keep our eye on there? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I said in 2020 about uh, this election was that women were going to be the deciders. And I think that that proved to be true across racial lines, whether it was, um, you know, the white women who uh, overwhelmingly continue to support uh, President Trump, or whether it was the uh, Latina or or Black women who we know uh, tend to be the matriarchs of of their societies who uh, were really... um, pushing and galvanizing and mobilizing their households, their communities uh, to, to get to the polls uh, this year. Uh, but, but women are also the deciders at home. Uh, and that has been so crucial in this pandemic. I think that that's going to be, uh, that's going to continue to be true uh, as we look uh, to reopening. And uh, so, so that is something that I think that we saw in action in 2020 and that we are going to continue to see in action in 2021. Thanks so much, Erin. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. That was Erin Haynes, award-winning journalist and editor-at-large at the 19th. Every week, I ask listeners to participate in the show by calling our platform speak. 
This week is no exception, and we'd like to know, how are you coping with the pandemic? It could be how you're coping financially, how you're coping emotionally, what tools you've learned from the last year that you're carrying with you into the new year. And on my end, I really double down on meditation and emotional wellness. I have friends who've come near death from COVID. I have other friends whose family members have died of COVID. You know, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to relate to my family when we can't always be together physically. So that's what I'm doing, and I want to know how you're doing. If you'd like to leave us a message, call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006 to leave us a voicemail. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show. Yes, dot show is a thing. And scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing and let us know how you're coping with the pandemic. Thank you. Coming up later this hour. And that is a key part of this visioning process. It's like, not what do I need now, but what would I need in five years, four years, three years, two years, one year? And then moving towards it as if you've only got six months to live. A new year means new hopes, and boy, do we need some hope right now. Our friend and tech contributor, Mutale Nkande, has made some big moves in recent years. She launched and became CEO of the organization AI for the People, which tracks and battles disinformation against Black communities, among other things. And she's here to share how she changed her outlook on her career and how that paid off in big ways. Welcome, Mutale. Farai, how are you? I am doing great. And you know what? Good riddance to bad rubbish. 2020 hit the road, Jack. And so (laughs) we are here to talk about, I understand that you have a visioning ritual. I want to know more about that. Yeah, sure. I really, for probably the last 15 years, starting to think about what would I need to have in place? Who would I need to know? And what money would I need to get to where I want to be Ooh, in the next year. I love that. Yeah, and I thought everybody did it for I. No, you you were just a genius, but we knew that. <laughs> so, so how do you deal with that basic question of visioning meets reality? I don't really care for reality. <laughs> Years ago, probably close to 20 now, Oprah Winfrey, when she had her show had uh, Dr. Scott M. Peck on the show, and they were talking about his book, The Road Less Traveled. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he talks about start with the end in mind. And then a few years later, I was being really introduced again through Oprah to more Zen-like practices and the idea that you can't hold on to outcomes. And after I got those two together, I was just like, look, let me have a plan. Whether it works or not is irrelevant, but if I'm constantly building towards my future, then I'm going to get something that I want. Right. Yeah. Let's get into mechanics. Mm -hmm. I love notebooks. I'm not always faithful. I used to be a daily journaler. I'm not every day now, but are you a pen and paper person? Do you post it? Note? Do you, how do you accomplish this, you know, documenting your vision? I came from TV. That was my life in journalism. So I'm a big picture person. So when I 
when I discovered vision boards, I found that really helpful, but it's even more kind of random and vague than that. I will just meditate often on an idea and not in a trained way, but I will just think what we really, really need in the world is and put it out there and then just start moving towards it. So really about two years ago, um, met with some funders, actually, I have a nonprofit and I was saying what we need in the world is to tell better and new stories about technology. Had no money, didn't know anyone who would enable me to do it, had no way of moving forward. And two years later, we just started shooting the first part of what will become a film. Wow, that's incredible. So what do you do when you actually succeed? And, and you know, what you were just saying about this manifesting in your life, sometimes success can be overwhelming and you've been doing a lot. It is. It's, it's actually really emotional. And this is where having a network of support becomes really important. I feel, you know, even coming into this show and coming in as a contributor is part of that sisterhood of ridiculous ambition, right? (laughs) This show didn't exist six months ago, and yet here we are, and it's become a part of my life. And certainly with the technology story that I told you, I would never have been able to envision that this would manifest at a time where, you know, Dr. Gabru from, from Google had been forced out for doing really similar work. And that type of not just success because I've reached a goal, but also think about you've done it now. You've thought about it. You've aligned the people. You've aligned the money. You have the spirit. Now you actually have to do the thing. And that is the most scary. You mentioned Dr. Timnit Gabru, mm-hmm. um, who was thoroughly tossed from the Google family. Who is she? What does she do? What happened? Yes. Yeah, so Dr. Gabru became really famous after writing a paper with Joy Bulawami on racism within facial recognition. It could not recognize Black faces and really has set off a global conversation about whether we should be using the technology. And the film that AI for the People, which is my organization, our executive producing, is based on the way facial recognition was used in the context of protest around George Floyd. So it was really personal, her firing to me. Well, Google would say that uh, she resigned uh, because essentially Dr. Gabru said that she wanted certain questions about how Google used and, and recognized the paper to be met and if they weren't, she would resign. And I only mention that because all of this stuff gets very legalistic. And I can only imagine, though I don't know, that there is possible legal action happening in a case like this. Um, so, you know, you're someone who is a journalist who has become a recognized expert on technology, uh, including AI and disinformation. But how are Black women treated in technology as an industry? We're treated like we're not wanted and we're not needed. And this is just because 
the Timnit story is also coming off the back of an of another woman, um, Ifoma Ozunu, I believe um, you say her name at Pinterest, who has just sued Pinterest for she wasn't being paid equitably for her work and ended up being really chastised in a job evaluation situation because she'd been responsible for pushing off plantations as a place people were recommending to have weddings. And her manager had said that she very much failed to point out the benefit of plantation living and plantation tourism. And that was the reason she couldn't get a raise. So I bring up those two stories in conversation because I agree, we have to be really um, cognizant that there is another side in each of these. But those two case studies, you just think these are people that design the future and they're designing a workforce that excludes and pushes out Black women. So when you vision, when you're doing this visioning process, what are you visioning for Black women and technology, for Latinas and technology, for, you know, just people and technology? What would you like to see? I actually had thought about this about five years ago and I visioned what freedom would look like, professional freedom. And it turned into an entrepreneurial venture, which is the work that I do now with AI for the people. And five years ago, I was much more optimistic, but it really was a feeling. So much of the visioning work that I do is based on how do I feel about something at the present time? And then how do I want to feel about that? So there's so much projection of, I want to feel safe. I want to feel valued. I want to have compensation in which not only can I take care of my day-to-day, but I can save and create, have access to joy, as well as generational. You know, what, what does generational wealth look like? And so... I was thinking about that five years ago, which means that I'm actually positioned in this moment, uh, January 1st, 2021, to realize. And that is a key part of this visioning process. It's like, not what do I need now, but what would I need in five years, four years, three years, two years, one year? And then moving towards it as if you've only got six months to live. As we wrap up, You know, we're doing work with the Guild of Future Architects, of which you're a member, on visioning the future. Tell us just one small concrete thing that is on your 2021 vision board. Being open to allowing other people to make mistakes with the same level of compassion that I have when I make mistakes. Mm. And that's a lot of personal work. I think... The emotional labor that is involved in stepping towards your future is real. And that needs to be a concrete thing that people commit to if they want to manifest in a way that I've been blessed to manifest. Because part of the reason I said yes to this show, part of the reason we're doing this project, even with the disinformation work and all of these other things, but it was a collaboration. Um, And so that's where I'm growing towards. Well, in the spirit of collaboration, thanks, Matali. Thank you. Such a pleasure, always. 
That was Mutale Nkande, CEO of AI for the People and a new contributor on Our Body Politic for all things AI, tech, and more. Coming up later this hour... Black women have certainly experienced financial losses this year. For starters, uh, having a job that provides a steady income is a precursor to attaining financial security, especially for Black women who generally don't have a family inheritance as that monetary buttress. Uh, Unfortunately, job losses during the coronavirus downturn have fallen hardest on Black people, and much of that is driven by Black women. You're listening to Our Body Politic. All of us have had to deal with the pandemic, the political unrest, and the general anxiety brought on by everything that's happened in 2020. Our children have been feeling it too. We invited Dr. Ryan DeLapp to help us build resilience in our young ones and ourselves. Dr. DeLapp is an attending psychologist at Montefiore Health System in the Bronx. He specializes in working with anxiety, depression, racial and cultural stress, and works with kids, adolescents, and young adults. Dr. DeLapp says he's seen a big difference in his patients since the pandemic started. I think it's the the Zoom fatigue. Um, having your face on camera and seeing yourself while you're talking is not like how it is in real life, you know? And so I've noticed a lot of people feeling very uncomfortable with seeing themselves more so. Um, I've also noticed people um, being more avoidant of social experiences, and so which can have big uh, consequences in terms of one's mood and feeling more sad and depressed if you're not really getting that social reinforcement of engaging with others that you might otherwise get outside of a pandemic. As we've been reporting on the show, children in communities of color are suffering disproportionately. A McKinsey study from last summer predicted a learning loss of seven months for the average middle school student as a result of the pandemic. But the model predicted that that number is nine months for Hispanic students and 10 months for Black students. For those of us who are parents or have kids in our lives that we love, what can we do to support them? Dr. DeLapp has ideas. Well, I think parents can support them by first helping their kids to have language for what they're experiencing. I think sometimes uh, parents or uh, adults can notice these concerns without their kids fully understanding what's going on. So I think the first step would be helping your kids to have a language for it. And there's a couple of ways that can happen. Um, you can, for younger kids, you can get things like uh, mood flip books and helping help them to kind of understand their emotions a little bit better, help them to give a name to anxiety. Um, and for older uh, kids like adolescents, helping the kids to understand how their anxiety might be getting in the way of their goals, whether it's if the kid's really motivated in school, helping them to see how that anxiety is not really helping them. The new year brings even more transitions. How can parents help their children cope with more changes? So I think parents can model to their kids certain concerns that they have about transitioning back so that to to kind of normalize this as an experience that their kids can maybe speak to for themselves in their own perspective. The second thing I would think about is in terms of reemerging is routines. The, our, our lives have shifted in terms of so oftentimes sleep, oftentimes in terms of electronic use and downtime and things along those lines. So as the world starts to quote unquote open back up, it's trying to re- reorient your schedule to a schedule that is commensurate to that type of lifestyle. Um, and then another thing I would think about is um, 
I'd call this like uh, flexibility goals or brave goals. And so what I'll do with families is I'll have everybody in the family, mother, father, grandmother, if they're living there, older brother, younger sister, and the identified person that I'm working with. And I'll encourage them all to kind of identify personal goals that they have for themselves about how being flexible when they kind of go back to school and or bravery, things that they're anxious about. And then this creates a sense of accountability as a family that everybody's working towards. And then also it creates a sense of reward and excitement as everybody is making progress towards their individual goals. So it creates this kind of family transition plan that I think is is really important. Dr. DeLapp just mentioned bravery. Bravery or grit or resilience are things he works on a lot with his patients. He says developing these is all about understanding them as a set of skills that can be taught and strengthened. And some of the skills I think that goes into grit and resilience are things like goal setting and sticking to a goal and persisting through the emotional discomforts that come as you work towards a goal, flexibility and understanding like we all are having to do that We may have goals that we want to achieve, but then when circumstances get in the way, we may have to be flexible in readjusting that goal. And then also understanding things like bravery and how when we feel nervous about things, how we can persist in our efforts. And lastly, and this is something I talk to a lot of adults about, is this idea of reward and self-reward, right? When you, how can you congratulate yourself and have gratitude for the efforts that you're making, right? So those are some of the things that I try to break down when parents talk about this idea of wanting their kids to grow in resilience, is how can we create uh, interventions or activities that work on each of those different components? Part of the work that Dr. DeLapp is doing a lot of recently is working with families on the pressure children are feeling around the discussion of race in our country. He says it's an opportunity to engage in racial socialization, which is about the way that parents talk to children about race and racism. The younger the kid is, um, I think you have to be more aware of what the kid's understanding of race and difference and that sense of other really is. And how do you educate them about that? Um, And uh, whether that's through uh, watching different shows or uh, reading certain books or um, sitting down and talking about your family and your culture and, and, and things along those lines. And then the second thing I've encouraged parents to do is not start from a place of, you know, what's how other people might see something wrong with you, but also but start from a place of pride. Like what is beautiful about your race and your color and your background? You know, what are the traditions that your family tries to uphold? There's an anxiety that can sometimes come with feeling different or an anxiety that can sometimes come with fearing that someone will see you as less than what you uh, want to be seen as. And so... Uh, I I think that having a source of pride is kind of like having a foundation. I think about like a house and like a house, if it's built on like a solid foundation, then, you know, it it gives it a little bit more sturdiness. And so I think that's a a good way to kind of help kids to embrace this sense of different doesn't always mean less than or worse. Um, It can mean that it's still beautiful and helping families to kind of start to have those conversations. That's Dr. Ryan DeLapp, psychologist at Montefiore Health System in the Bronx. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. DeLapp, Ph.D. That's D-R-D-E-L-A-P-P, Ph.D. Thank you, doctor. Coming up next, 
The pandemic really reminded me how much of entertainment and pop culture is rooted in large physical gatherings. You know, from like packed movie theaters or concert halls to the infamous crowds of something like San Diego Comic-Con, that physical aspect of entertainment is the industry's biggest disadvantage during the pandemic. But the community aspect of pop culture and the strength of fandoms will survive and help recoup losses as much as it possibly can in the new year. You're listening to Our Body Politic. I know that so many of us have been watching more TV than ever since the pandemic started, and that's just one reason that the entertainment industry has been upended in 2020. Here to help us understand the big highs and lows in entertainment and media is our entertainment business contributor, Casey Mendoza. She's a reporter for the video news platform, Newsy. Welcome, Casey. Hi. So who was the most successful in the entertainment business in 2020? The biggest winners this year were really streaming platforms, you know, big players like Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, etc. But even beyond the big players, we saw smaller, more niche companies um, like Crunchyroll, which specializes in anime specifically, really grow as well. Um, to throw in some numbers, researchers from Parks Associates just announced that 45% of U.S. households now subscribe to three or more streaming services. Um, compare that to 2019, the number was just 27%. So that's huge growth. Let's flip the question. Who had the hardest time in 2020? Who was on the struggle bus and suffered the biggest losses? It would be an understatement to say it's been a tough year for everyone. You know, millions of people are out of work, and that includes the majority of entertainment workers around the country. Now, one thing I want to clarify is that when I say, you know, entertainment workers, I don't mean celebrities or executives who have the means to get by and stay at home comfortably. I'm talking about the stage workers or hair and makeup artists or box office employees um, that really make up the foundation of the industry. But even beyond people that work in film and television, uh, the live events industry has been hit really hard as well. So a common thing I heard when I covered the issue was that um, live events, so like live indie music venues or um, small businesses that specialize in event planning, they were the first to close and they'll likely be the last to reopen. Mm. Yeah, concert halls, indie venues, caterers, um, more than 80 independent music venues in the country have closed since March. And the president of the Live Events Coalition told me um, earlier in the summer that um, more than 60% of all those involved in the industry have either seen a reduction in pay or a complete loss of business. Yeah. And, you know, since you have been following entertainment for quite a while, like, what has surprised you? What has surprised you about this year of media and the pandemic? I don't know if there was anything that really surprised me necessarily, but one thing I noticed recently was that my expectations changed a lot as the pandemic continued on. 
Um, you know, for example, back in March, I never would have expected Disney to send its live action remake of Mulan straight to streaming. You know, that movie was originally guaranteed to make around $2 billion in movie theaters. But then during the summer, as the pandemic continued and movie theaters continued to see losses um, and lower their expectations, uh, I wasn't really surprised uh, when Disney uh, then decided to forgo a theatrical release. Um, those shifts in expectations happened constantly during the pandemic, so business-wise, nothing else ever really surprised me. But something that I didn't expect to see um, actually happened more politically, and it goes back to you know, our conversation about the losses faced by indie music venues um, before the pandemic. The industry had never really had to advocate for itself on a national political scale, but because of the lockdown measures and the closures, several in the industry formed the um, what is called the National Independent Venue Association, or NEVA, um, which is a, a lobbying group meant to recognize and support venues around the country and lo lobby for federal financial support. Um, I've written two stories on the organization since March, and even though Again, it's newly formed. It has over 2,000 member venues, and its efforts have found um, really strong bipartisan support from people like Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas or Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer of New York. You know, both states have such rich histories in live music, so it really shows how almost unifying um, this issue is. And that's been uh, kind of something that has been uplifting, but also um, a little unexpected. So that sounds like, you know, a possible ray of sunshine for entertainment industry workers in the new year. Anything else that looks hopeful? Yeah, the truth is, like, as much as I don't know exactly or logistically what can be done to recoup these losses and help these workers out in the new year, I do have, like, a conceptual answer because the pandemic uh, really reminded me how much of entertainment and pop culture is rooted in large physical gatherings, you know, from like packed movie theaters or concert halls to the infamous crowds of something like San Diego Comic-Con. That physical aspect of entertainment is the industry's biggest disadvantage during the pandemic. But the community aspect of pop culture and the strength of fandoms will survive and help recoup losses as much as it possibly can in the new year. And we've seen instances of this community support already um, from when I mentioned uh, the community actions of Neva being able to grow so quickly because there are fans all over the country to indie bookstores getting windfalls of donations um, to stay in business to even like silly virtual table reads of shows like Community or Parks and Rec fundraising for COVID relief efforts. Um, all of that was a glimmer of hope. Um, like you said, um, something that will make me at least cautiously optimistic about the future of entertainment. Well, Casey, I really look forward to our future conversations and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. That was Casey Mendoza, newsy reporter and entertainment business contributor at Our Body Politic. Now it's time for Show Me the Money, our business segment with Our Body Politic contributor Ruth Umo of Forbes magazine. In this episode, I asked Ruth to recap the year that Black women had financially and offer some advice on how they can improve their financial situation in 2021 and beyond. Welcome, Ruth. Happy to be back. 
So we are going to talk about what makes us stronger, how Black women and all women of color can plan for the future. But we have to start with a bit of pain, which is what happened financially to women of color in 2020. Black women have certainly experienced financial losses this year. For starters, uh, having a job that provides a steady income is a precursor to attaining financial security, especially for Black women who generally don't have a family inheritance as that monetary buttress. Uh, Unfortunately, job losses during the coronavirus downturn have fallen hardest on Black people, and much of that is driven by Black women. And so when jobs are scarce, they're obviously unable to bring in income or to access employer-sponsored retirement plans. And so they really have to be creative and seek out uh, other options and side hustles. Also, among Black women, we're seeing this troublesome failure, if you will, to invest in stocks because they're viewed as a riskier option. However, what we've seen is that this inactivity in stock market trade-in Uh, for those who have the means to do so, is one of the reasons for the lack of wealth among African-American women. And while it's more high risk to invest in stocks, Black women's reluctance to do so means that they're really shortchanging themselves and yielding less of a return in the long term. Uh, During the pandemic specifically, it also means that they missed out on soaring stocks, especially tech stocks, uh, as Wall Street soared to record highs. You know, I'm one of these people who has a retirement account, but I was someone who in the past dipped into that, paid a heavy, you know, tax burden and penalty on it. And I understand a lot of people who have retirement accounts, and not everyone does, who have been hit by the the financial impact of the pandemic are thinking about taking out that money. Why is that so complicated? It's quite complicated, especially if you're dipping into your 401k or a traditional Roth IRA account, because first of all, you're usually subject to income taxes and there's a 10% penalty on the amount you withdraw. It's a little less problematic the older you are because that money has had time to compound, especially if you have diversified stocks. If you're someone who's younger, financial experts will often tell you to exhaust all other needs. If you can find freelance work, do that. If there's an entry-level job that you can take, do that. Your retirement savings are there to do exactly that. They're meant to be a safety net and a financial cushion when you do reach retirement age around 60 to 65. For some people, investing in the stock market at a very specific level, like I want this stock, this stock, and this stock, seems totally normal for other people, including me, I wouldn't really know where to start. So what are the options for having an index or having someone else take a look at the market? Yeah, so there are a few things you can do here. If you're someone who's a complete new beginner to invest in, I often say check out some of these smaller apps like Acorn or Robinhood, where you can buy shares of a company. You can put in $30 uh, into ETFs or mutual funds. Those are just some small ways to really get your feet well and, again, to build up that financial acumen as you begin to invest more and more in stocks. Again, the younger you are, the earlier that you want to get into this 
game because it does compound. That interest compounds and it can be worth quite a bit when you're 40 years old, when you're 50 years old. Reach out to a financial advisor. That's one key mistake that Black women often make is that they're not reaching out to someone who, again, has that financial knowledge. A quick Google search will lead you to a number of free resources and educational programs uh, for those who are fairly new to the investing game. So let's get to the impending new year. So what's your personal financial advice for the year ahead? This year in particular has truly taught us the importance of having an emergency fund, especially for healthcare needs. So the rule of thumb is to put away at least three to six months worth of expenses. Also make sure to budget, budget, budget relentlessly, especially if you're a business owner or a freelancer or working in a space where you have to be really entrepreneurial. Along those same lines, look for cost-cutting measures if you can. Uh, The beauty Mm -hmm. of this pandemic, one of the few silver linings is that many of us are able to work from home. And so this remote work has allowed many of us, myself included, to be able to move back in with our parents so we don't have to pay for rent or to areas where the cost of living is low. So make sure that you're taking advantage of opportunities such as this one. And finally, and perhaps most importantly for Black women, make sure that you're living within your means. And as we know, once you're in debt, it takes a very, very long time to dig yourself out uh, and to get back into a healthy financial position. Ruth, words to the wise, and some of these lessons I had to learn the hard way. Hopefully some of the folks listening don't. Thanks a lot, Ruth. Thank you for having me. Ruth Umo is Forbes diversity and inclusion reporter and our business and economics contributor on Our Body Politic. Looking back at a year of complete and utter chaos, I find myself feeling really grateful for this show, especially for you, our listeners, and the team that helps me make this happen. So I asked the Our Body Politic team, what did you learn in 2020 that you want to take with you into 2021? And here's what they said. I'm Paulina Velasco, and I'm the senior producer for Our Body Politic. And one thing that I want to bring into 2021 from this past year is a practice of, or the ability to to maintain a sense of equanimity in the face of lots of changes and lots of news. I feel like I got pretty good at trying to maintain an even composure. My name is Michael Castaneda, and I'm a production assistant for Our Body Politic. And one thing that I will take from 2020 into 2021 is that even though personally this was one of the most difficult years for me professionally, it was one of my best. And I know a lot of people can't say the same thing, so I'm optimistic about going into next year. Hi, this is Juleika. I am the show's executive producer. And the one thing I want to take from 2020 into 2021 is my awareness that I need to slow down. I think this year, a lot of people really realized how important it is to just slow down. A lot of it had to do with external circumstances that were beyond our control. But I really appreciated that at times um, because You don't always have to be rushing to feel like you're being productive. Hi, everyone. My name is Priscilla Alabi. I am the politics producer and booker at Our Body Politic. One thing I'll take from 2020 into 2021 
is the fact that rest is not even an option. It's a necessity and that I am worthy of protection, care, and respect. This is Mary Knowles, the political booker. What I'll take with me into 2021 is a renewed respect for the U.S. Postal Service. My name is Virginia Lora. I provide production assistance at OBP. And something I'm taking from 2020 into 2021 is this idea that you can never finish getting to know a person. I've gotten to know friends I've had for years and I thought I already knew on a much deeper level than I could have imagined. So I'm taking that lesson happily into the new year. My name is Michelle Baker. I'm an assistant producer on Our Body Politic. One thing that I've always known, but I think has been highlighted this last year is just how important it is to be around the people you love and do the things you love doing daily. It's just important to to do things that make you happy every single day. I'm Cedric. I'm the lead producer and mixer for the show. One of the things I love to do is cook. My signature dish is French toast. And probably out of mostly boredom this year, I spent a lot of time perfecting my recipe. Different spice mixes, homemade compote, the works. Going into 2021, I want to take that similar curiosity and adventurous spirit to other parts of my life. My name is Mark Betancourt. I help produce Our Body Politic. And I've learned this year that my family is resilient and we can get through anything if we just focus on each other. Right? Right. Right. Me, I am taking my health seriously, and that, for me, means physical, emotional, and also spiritual health. It wasn't always easy for me to pick a lane in the vast world of spirituality. I grew up Catholic, going to Mass every Sunday, and then I practiced Buddhism for several years, and now I consider myself interfaith. My family includes atheists, Protestants, and Catholics, and my friends also include observant Jews, Muslims, and Hindus, as well as atheists and agnostics. At this season, faith can either be an anchor or a bone of contention. So I choose to honor all the paths my friends and family have taken and to be grateful to have a connection to something bigger than myself. I wish all of you peace inside yourselves and in our shared world. I'm grateful to share this space with you and to look ahead to a new year of our body politic. Okay. We've got some exciting news. Starting in a few weeks, we're going to switch up our format to give you an even more in-depth, insightful conversation with some of the trailblazers, thinkers, and leaders you've heard from on Our Body Politic. That means a roundtable with Aaron Haynes and new political contributor Jess Morales-Fraquetto, an even more stellar guest breaking down the most important news of the week. Be sure you subscribe to Our Body Politic everywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Our Body Politic. We have a new website too, ourbodypolitic.show. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It's produced by Lantigua Williams & Co., I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua-Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. 
Our political booker is Mary Knowles. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, Zuhira Ali, Sarah McClure, and Virginia Laura. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.